How are you all? Good to see you. Do you mind, Dale? This is my buddy Dale, and I've known him a while. Dale had a heart attack a couple weeks ago, huh? And um, this will tell you everything you need to know about Dale. He has a heart attack and drives himself to the emergency room because that's just what Dales do. <laughs> and uh, the doctors are surprised he's alive, right? But here you are. Praise the Lord. Let's praise God for... He's a good friend. He's a good man. Loves the Lord. He says it was a wake-up call for him, so I'm like... Let me know what you're waking up to. <laughs> He's probably like, it's a wake-up call, Dale. I got a few things to tell you. I'm like, go back to sleep, Dale. That's okay. Now, thank you for letting me just share that. That's what church should be, right? We're here for each other. We love you. Glad you're... <laughs> this sounds like a Hallmark card. Dear Dale, glad you're alive. Too. Happy Palm Sunday. <laughs> Sorry. That wasn't even in the notes. Wow, look at that. There we go. You know, there's, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, there's a, there's a Christian calendar, not like a calendar with Christian things like themes, but an actual rhythm to the year. And there's times of preparation, there's times of celebration. Obviously, we're in a season now almost out of Lent, which is a preparation of your heart to actually celebrate um, Easter, right, and to come prepared and to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, which is the turning point. And um, so often in holidays, um, especially in our country here in the States and some around the world, um, it becomes a rhythm for families and it becomes a lot of expectations. Easter and Christmas can feel that way. Thanksgiving can feel that way. And often in like premarital counseling, that's one of the topics I hit with young couples. And they're like, why are we talking about holidays? I'm like, because one of the first um, opportunities for communication will be how you spend, people are nodding their heads. It's like how I said, your first fight may be about how you spend the holidays and where you go and how much time each person gets, right, and, at the location. And what's amazing about that is that's a, a, a conversation that you'll have your entire marriage. So it's not like, oh, the first year, that wasn't so bad. Wait till next year. And I remember, like, with my mom, she was, a, is, was an amazing woman, but if we were late, it was just a silent look of looking at me and, like, you're late. And I'm like, but I'm here. Except one time on Easter, we spent the whole day with her. And then I think I forgot something at her house, and so I called her the next day, the day after Easter. Mom, we forgot this. Oh, hey, hey Mom, it's Dale. Oh, Dale, when do I get to see you? Mom, I was there yesterday. Oh, yeah. The guilt just kind of kicked in with her. It's just like holidays, guilt. So, um, but there's a rhythm to that and a rhythm to holidays. But there's a day that I would say is an incredibly significant day. It's not, even though this is Palm Sunday, but it's the day that we're going to talk about this morning a little bit. That's on some calendars. That's in some cultures. But it kind of gets passed over really quick. In fact, uh, one of the countries that embraces this, it's, a, it's actually a holiday for them, um, is in Germany, where they actually celebrate Ascension Day. Well, to say they celebrate Ascension Day is probably a bit of an exaggeration because 
they now connect Father's Day to Ascension Day because they talk about the day that Jesus went back to be with his father. But then over the years, Father's Day, and according to my friend who I worked with for a while, um, who's from Germany, basically describes Ascension Day slash Father's Day in Germany as this now. It's a day off of work for everybody and a chance for men to act like boys. It involves drinking lots of beer, riding a beer bike, and unfortunately, little responsibility. Traditionally, they would fill up wagons with beer and go into the woods. Happy Ascension Day in Germany. <laughs> but it's still the day that they, they originally recognize is this is the day that Jesus returned back to his Father. And now this isn't just like any other day. And we can just kind of flow past it. But there's a part in our, our scripture that we've been teaching through that talks very clearly about this. We've been looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, through this Lent season. Let me read it to you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And in today's verse, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Father, we come before you this morning. Worship didn't start at 10 a.m. this morning. Worship has gone on in heaven, and we, so we just join the worship that's been happening in heaven nonstop. We say, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Father, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. May you open up the eyes of our heart this morning to something new and fresh and to understand that, Jesus, you are on the throne that you are the king and you care. Speak to us. Let us hear you today. In your name, amen. We've been looking at these verses. It's an incredible poetic phrasing that Paul is using to get across a deep, deep theological truth. It can almost be creed-like where it's a reminder of the things that we believe or the things that we're trying to believe. There's a power in creeds where it like pushes back into our hearts what it is that we believe or that we follow, or a reminder or a challenge of the very thing. In the first couple of verses, as you could see in verse five and six, it begins with this heavenly conversation before Jesus even comes, that he did not regard equality with his father, something to be grasped onto, but he let go. The middle part of this poem is Jesus is the God-man, fully God, fully man, the incarnation, what he did, that he humbled himself as a human to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. And now we're in the final movement of this creed, of this poem, and understanding our whole faith is that Jesus now has a role in heaven, a new role. And it's new in the fact that something new has been accomplished Something new has been defeated. The very thing that caused him to come in the first place, he now sits in a different place. And this position that he is now in is his current and forever position. 
It's not just something that's flat on a piece of paper that this is what we believe, but this is the actual existence of reality happening now. Because the actual gospel, to understand what the gospel really is, it is not complete without understanding this piece, without understanding this part of who he is. The end result is not simply our place with God. It is Jesus' present and eternal position as king. When you read scripture and you ever you see Jesus the Christ or Jesus Christ, especially in the book of Matthew, it literally means Jesus the king, Jesus king, king, king. It's all about that. Timothy Keller writes this. The gospel is not about choosing to follow advice. It's about being called to follow a king. Not just someone with the power and authority to tell you what needs to be done, but here it is. But someone with the power and authority to do what needs to be done. And then to offer it to you as good news. We don't simply follow somebody who says, here's your best life ahead of you. Here's the advice that I give for you. Here's some good nuggets. But he says, I literally have the power and authority and I did the thing that needed to be do, to do and now I'm giving it to you. That is a good king. That is a loving king. This truth was significant to Paul. Paul was revealing these things before the gospels came to be and came to be available for people. He wrote the similar thing to the people at Ephesus, another church, another people that he wanted to make sure that they understood what Jesus is now. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 23, Paul writes this. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is a declarative statement. This is not just the thing that we choose to follow a belief potentially, but what Paul is laying out there for you and should be considered by all that this is the thing. Not just a path, this is the path. Not just a choice, this is really the only choice because there's only one king above all. And what's so unique about this kingdom of God that Jesus came and talked about over and over and over, he consistently said, as you read scripture, the kingdom of God is like this. The kingdom of God is like this, is that this kingdom has a king that pursued a cross, not a throne, that he pursued to serve people, not to be served. What kind of king does that? It's the kind of king that has stepped in, accepted the praise, and accepted the pain. Jesus emerged from this incognito into his, into his full and acknowledged possession of the divine name and lordship of Jesus. He became nothing. He became obedient to the point of death on a cross to be elevated to the right hand of his Father in heaven. You see, the ascension, when Jesus returned 40 days after 
He rose again from the dead. He was with people. He loved people. He revealed what the plan was and how he had conquered it. And he returned to the right hand of God. It was not just to go back to how things were. Sometimes when college kids come home from college, they come home and they want to make sure their room is as they left it, which sometimes would be a total train wreck on how they left it. My wife found an old dance bag of my daughter last night that she hadn't opened in six years. We found the smell in our house. <laughs> Sorry, Anna, if you're watching live. It stinks. But we come home and we want like our favorite meal. We want things to be the way they were. We, there, there's like this comfort back home. Yes, Jesus was back home, but things were a little bit different because there was a victory that he had just won. He has been elevated to king and now he has conquered the enemy. The thing that took place from the very beginning when Adam and Eve chose to be their own decision makers. That God put in place a pursuance of mankind and now that victory was accomplished. The ascension wasn't simply Jesus going home, it was Jesus having a seat. It was Jesus now sitting the right hand of his father. I'm imagining that conversation. Jesus and his father talked so much during, this, during his human um, existence. And we talked about that, that that was a point of trust, that Jesus confined himself into a human body. And there were so many times that Jesus was like, I have to go talk to my father to rebuild, to, to like, man, this is hard, and, and to have an opportunity to be affirmed by his father. And I'm just picturing that day he's back sitting in the throne. I know this is kind of a human way of looking about it, but it's all I can do because I am human. I wonder the joy of like, we, it happened. Creation is now being invited back in. There is no more wall between us and humanity. The forgiveness has taken, the victory has been won. Jesus, have a seat, let's rule together. In Revelations 3.21, Jesus told the church in Laodicea, I was victorious, and I sat down with my father on his throne. The declaration to this church saying there's no need to wallow, there's no need to worry about the world, because the person who's the head of the church claimed the victory in the song we just sang. So when we hear that Jesus is a king, this can make us feel kind of different things, right? King. We think of like a throne. We think of like there's a separation. One, it can make us like, wow, we're on the winning side. Go, team Jesus. It's not really Jesus' point. We can also go, man, if he's the king and he has authority, I wonder if he even knows what's really going on down here. Or we can go, it might cause me to wonder, how do I even engage with a king? Like I can feel inspired in the moment that Jesus won and we can look forward to the events of this week and the celebration of Easter that Jesus won, but work is still really hard. My marriage is still struggling. I'm wondering if one day I'll have kids. This seems to be really difficult. I'm laid out in the hospital with a heart attack. What are the things that even though Jesus is on the throne, changes what my life is like right now. 
But what's vital to understand is that Jesus has an ongoing position of king, but he has another ongoing position at the same time. And that he has an active role as a priest. Now, we can visually go like, now he has a crown, and now he has like, what, a little white collar on? What is going on here? The word of a priest, and his role as a priest is an advocate. It's a go-between between us and the Father. That is the role of a human priest, is like the man who talks to God on your behalf. But what we know to be true is that that person isn't as necessary to go between us and God because Jesus goes, I'm bringing you to my Father right away. So picture, if you will, someone of total authority who's come in and stepped in and taken care of the very thing that we could not is also actively involved as a person who's connecting you to his Father at the same time. It's a loving priest. It's someone who says, come draw close to me. It's somebody who says this, and Hebrews 7 to 24 to 26 explains it. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. You see, the reason then that phrase that Christ can save us completely is not only because he died on earth, but because he rose again and because he always lives to intercede for us in heaven, to advocate for us, to remind his fathers they are forgiven, they are cleansed, they are now a part of us because God's holiness had us apart. But now we're united with him. You see, Jesus is always talking about you to his father. It's part of the conversation. I mean, as humanly as I can imagine it, for him to be an advocate for you, for him to be a priest for you, for him to intercede for you, there's conversations going on in heaven right now about you. Now, if you come before that throne and you're like feeling guilt or shame, you might be thinking there's a voice of disapproval. But it's a voice of forgiveness, of compassion, of hope. Because what Christ does is he brings dead things alive. That's all that he does. He brings new life to dead places. It's called renewal. Him and his father are talking about you and talking about us and talking about this world. And when you cry out to him, the conversation continues. It might be helpful a little bit to see one of the beautiful reasons, and we see this in John chapter 1, of why Jesus came to earth. We know that there was a, a forgiveness and a death and a resurrection, but there was another piece where he's like, I want you to see what my father is really like. So if you ever sit and wonder, what is God really like? What's happening in heaven right now? We look at the earthly life and teachings and actions of Jesus because it reveals some things. How do we tap into this king, this priest? Let me show you a couple stories from God's word about that. There was this moment in Jesus' life where his dear, dear friend Lazarus passes away. And in this story, it, it, it shows us how to tap into the heart of God. 
and what potentially might move God about us. Jesus delayed a few days. Lazarus had passed away. It was just two miles away, but he delayed. He had heard he was sick, took some extra time, got there later than some people thought. Pick up the story in John eleven seventeen. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary, who were the sisters of Lazarus, to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha had heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. You see, after reaching Bethany, Jesus was confronted by his two sisters, by Lazarus' two sisters, Mary and Martha. Martha's confrontation was uh, just outside the city, it was a little bit of rife, a little bit of frustration. Her tone was different. Her tone was around the mental side. Jesus, if you had been here, this not would have happened. Jesus says, your brother will rise again. She's like, I know, I know, I know. Everyone's going to rise again, Jesus. It was, uh, uh, it was with frustration. It was kind of like this forthright, kind of like, Jesus, you, I deserve better. We've tapped into you. And Jesus kind of entirely sidesteps her critique. She says, why weren't you here? He kind of says, oh, he'll rise again. But then comes Mary with the exact same words as Martha used for the confrontation. Lord, if you have been here, my brother would not have died. Mary and Martha's words are the same, yet astonishing. Jesus doesn't sidestep Mary's response. He receives her words tenderly. Let me show you John 11. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not, would not have died. Exact same phrase. But when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Same phrase. For those of you who are looking, what is the words I need to say to tap into Jesus or God a little bit more? If I ask in a certain way, if I say things in a certain way, what are the magic words? He reveals in this story, the words aren't magical. But your heart means everything to him. Martha comes out of a place of kind of indignation, kind of entitlement, kind of like, Jesus, I know you could have done this. Mary comes before him and is like, God, I'm hurting. You could have, where were you? Jesus engages with the deep hurts. This is true all throughout ages where God hears the cries of his people. God hears the cries of things that truly matter to you. The things that we try to hide and conceal and put into place so no one else will see, God sees them. And there's a king priest ruling in heaven right now that deeply engages with the cries of your heart. The key is we often see Jesus for who we are rather than who he is. 
what I need versus what his role is. We may be asking altogether sensible questions on the surface, but below there might be this resentment, entitlement, like prove yourself. When you look at John 11, we see that everyone in this story critiqued Jesus. The disciples question his travel plans to Bethany. They say, why are we even going? He's already dead. The sisters both asked Jesus deep existential questions for their loss. The religious leaders critique him for his actions. How dare you do this on a day like this? Everybody has a critique of Jesus. You know who the only person who doesn't have a critique for Jesus is? Lazarus. He has no critique of Jesus. He's like, what? Because he's alive now. We can find all the questions and critiques for Jesus and his church that we want to find. I often say you can find anything you're looking for. The things that don't work, the pain, the struggles. We will find the dirt we're looking for, but there will likely be no end to our Western secular post-Christian critiques of Jesus. The critiques of the Bible, the critiques of the church, the American church, whatever we want to say. But there's no life there. Who's the one who had no critique of Jesus? The one whose life was restored back to him. What's interesting is the ones who have no critiques are the ones who are finding the resurrection life. The broken the hurting, those who are in the margins of life, the ones who are being renewed, those are the ones who are saying, Jesus is who he says he is. So what gets in the way? Our list of things to do, our list of people to be, our list of urgencies, the things, our plans, our ideas, some of those absolutely are from God and he places certain things in your heart and they're not good. it's not bad. I'm not saying the worries of this world are not real worries. What I'm saying is when we make Jesus like ourselves versus him being who he is. So who is he? He is sitting at the right hand of his father because he came and took away the effects of sin in this world. He is the priest that is advocating for you, the only one who can, and is having conversations with his Father in heaven right now about you. That's who he is. In this potentially foundational shaking book, speaking of Jesus, Carl Madera writes this. As I look over the history of Christendom, I notice our minds are where our hearts should be. The kingdom of Jesus has somehow become a religion of the mind rather than a spiritual response of the heart. We focus on psychological compliance rather than the spiritual dependence upon the teachings of Jesus and the guidance of the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Mary went with her heart. Martha went with her mind. Jesus came through and, rose, and Lazarus rose from the dead, just like Martha said he could do. Mary was comforted because she was real. She was open. She just let it out before Jesus because that's the kind of king we have that wants you 
engages with you and talks about you to his father. There's a second story quickly in scripture I want you to see. This is after Jesus had risen from the dead. The disciples probably really didn't know what to do, so they said, well, we might as well go out and go fishing again. They're out fishing, they look getting closer back to the beach. There is Jesus sitting on the beach preparing a meal for them. They get so excited, Peter can't contain himself, jumps out of the boat, walks through the water. Maybe he was hoping he could walk on the water. Jesus is like, no, I'm gonna make you work for this one a little bit. They're just so excited to see him. They had finished eating. And as a good preacher, Jesus goes, I got time for a sermon. So he's looking at Peter, the same man who just denied Jesus three times not too long before. He looks at him, and in John 21, he says this. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, then take care of my sheep. The third time he said to Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. He said, Simon Peter, do you love me more than these? What's around him? More than the nets, more than the boats, more than the, like what, more than what? No, the people, the things. What's Jesus doing? He's matching G Peter's denial. Peter denied him three times. Jesus is like, I'm going to restore you three times. If you love me, feed my sheep. If you love me, tend my lambs. What matters to the king and priest, Jesus? What matters? People, lambs, sheep the people of this world. He's asking you to do something you cannot do on your own. Tend the lambs, tend the ones that I'm sending you. I remember when I was a young youth pastor, one of my goals, this is a strange goal for many of you, but for me, I just grew up wanting to be a youth pastor. One of my goals was to speak at a camp. After doing that, I'm like, why was that my goal? It's a lot of work. But I always wanted to speak at a camp. You get to speak in front of young people. They're kind of like, oh, that's the camp speaker. It's kind of a weird little like thing. But man, before Instagram, it was the bomb. So I spoke at this camp, told funny stories, did whatever I was doing, talked about Jesus. And then there was this night, maybe the third night of camp, there was this group of girls, I think it was like a junior high camp, and they all stayed afterwards and they just were weeping. And I'm like, man, I'm better than I thought. That's a joke. Because <laughs> I was just so sure that they had just been, the Holy Spirit had fallen on them and like they had come to know Jesus and I'm the camp speaker, they're always gonna remember. And like, oh, that's the guy. And I'm like, you guys came to faith. And I'm like, I was almost like stepping into like some weird thing and I'm like, and so they're like, do we have a few moments to talk to you? And I'm like, yes, because I'm the camp speaker. <laughs> so weird. Uh, what an idiot I was. 
And these group of probably 12, you know, like 12 and 13 year olds just weeping. And they're like, we want to talk to you. So I'm like, yes, God, this is what you have for me. And they said, we need some advice about our boyfriends. And as the story went along, these were boys they had met the day before. <laughs> and apparently things weren't going well, so they just were all in tears, crying about whether Johnny and Jimmy and Sean liked them or not. And what were they going to do about it? And I'm like, but did you just hear the message I gave about Jesus? But everything in their heart, they're just wailing and help us. And, under, and I'm like, is there anybody else here in the room? Anybody else want to talk to the camp speaker? But they were the only ones who stayed behind. Not to talk to, about spiritual things, but to talk about Jimmy and Johnny and Sean. I don't remember the boys' names. I, I said a few things of advice. I said, wait till tomorrow. <laughs> you know, see how this works out a little bit. You got some time, but to them the world was ending. I remember walking back to my cabin that night going, God, this is not, this is not what my plan was. <laughs> and the Holy, this is just what the Holy Spirit does. He says, Dale, tend my sheep. Those are my lambs. You don't get to decide what matters to them. If they're crying about boys they met yesterday, they're crying about boys who met yesterday. Listen to them. Care for them. But God, I'm more interested in tending the lambs of significant lambs, like the head lamb, the big sheep. You know, the big sheep in the pasture, the one who gets all the other sheep to hang out with them. That's my call. He's like, that's somebody's call. You get the junior high girls crying about their boyfriends, and you'll like it. It was a good wake-up call for me. Because in our today's day and age, we curate relationships probably like unlike any other time in our life. We control through the pandemic, which we needed to, who we see, who we don't see for health and safety. But some of us have continued that on where we curate the relationships and we curate who we're around more than we ever have in the history of our country. But if we're not in situations where we actually have to tend sheep together, and interact with people that we may not normally interact with. And we're not living out the gospel. One of the beauties and one of the things I love about being able to come back and see people face to face in church is to tend the lambs. You might be thinking, am I one of those lambs he's talking about? No, I probably am the one I'm talking about. But there's something beautiful and powerful about that. You see, one of the key things of understanding Jesus is understanding true friendship. Jesus says, I will show you my heart and I will give you my life. You see, when Jesus approached his disciples on the beach, the Greek word he uses is poidos, which kind of means children or like my dear ones. They were his friends, his amigos, his pals. It might have meant that the disciples were probably younger than we thought they would be. It also meant that Jesus was his dear, dear friends. In Jesus' own word, he declares the kind of friend he actually is. In John 15, 13, he says, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. 
You see, a true friend always lets you in, like in. And a true friend never intentionally lets you down. This is the friendship Jesus offers, the kingship, the priesthood, all at the same time, all working together. I think it's always important to ask ourselves, like even the tending of the sheep is who we are as friends. Do we spin people? Are we more concerned about how they are affecting us or how we're stepping into them? Do you have friends or people that are just like you or do you also have friends or people in your life they are the lambs that God is sending your way? Have you curated your existence to have total control of the people around you? Because if you have, you're not developing the heart of God. You're not tending the sheep. You see, the things about lambs is that lambs expose our hearts. Lambs push our patience. So when he says, follow me, his role as king and priest really says this. I am the only friend that lets you totally in. I'm the friend that's never going to let you down because I've gone down and conquered the very thing that pulls you away. And I'm talking about you all the time with my father. See, I can tend the lambs that Jesus sends my way when I am fully filled with him. It's not always the best, humanly, but it's the most powerful spiritually. And only when you're a true friend to others can you, to, with Christ can you really be a true friend to other people really well. You see, that's who Jesus is. He's at the right hand of his father now as king and priest with full authority. And he's intimately caring for you. He responds to your tears. He responds to your hurts. He responds to the things that matter to you. He responds to authenticity above all else. That's my king. That's your king. That's our king. As we prepare to respond, let's just focus on Jesus a little bit. He sits in the everlasting position right now and authority of the king. He continues to do the eternal work of the priest advocating for you. And he fills us with the compassion and presence of a true friend all working together at the same time. You see, that's the reason he got on a colt and entered Jerusalem that day. And they shouted praises at him. Hosanna comes in the light. Here, here comes the way of the Lord, the king. That's why he pursued the cross. That's why he allowed the tomb. That's why he gained victorious on the third day. So that he would be the king for you. And that he would be the priest for you. And he'd be the friend that you never had.